Hello and welcome to the Alba Diversity Podcast, an Alba network undertaking to profile and highlight diverse and immigrant neuroscientists. The Alba network aims to promote equity and diversity in the brain sciences. We talk to neuroscientists across positions, career paths and backgrounds to better understand their personal journeys. We showcase the grit and determination it takes to overcome hurdles as part of underrepresented or minority groups. We talk about what keeps them going as individuals and as neuroscientists in today's world. And today we have with us Dr. Nancy Padilla Coreano. She's a postdoctoral associate at the Systems Neuroscience Laboratory at the Sauk Biological Institute. Um, Nancy, what was the first time you thought about the brain and neurons and, and how did it grow into a career in neuroscience? So the first time I thought about the brain was actually through music. So I went to this public school that was specialized for music because my mom is a piano teacher and that's where she went when she was little. And so I did middle school and high school in this music school. And as I matured a little bit and my curiosity grew, what I was thinking was a lot about the effect that music has on us. So for example, I wonder how come some music sounds happy and makes us feel happy and other music sounds sad and makes us feel sad, right? So how does that happen? So then I think it was when I was in high school, I was like, I wanna study the brain. I didn't know how I was gonna study the brain. I didn't know a scientist. I honestly thought that scientists were people that get selected. So the idea of me deciding to become a scientist, that didn't cross my mind. But I knew there were medical doctors and I was like, maybe as a medical doctor, I can study the brain. If you aren't given an example of a yeah, neuroscientist, exactly. like you're not going to think about it as a possibility. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. In my case, I could only imagine what I knew possible. And like being a scientist was out of the realm of my possibilities. And quickly after I started undergrad in the University of Puerto Rico, that's where I'm from, I learned that there were scientists in campus. And I was like, what? There are scientists in Puerto Rico? I didn't even know that. Or if I knew it, I... It didn't um, really register that there were scientists. It didn't really register, right? That right. was something of the movies or something in America, but not, not where I was from. A student that was a little older told me there are neuroscience labs. So I learned that word in college. I didn't know that word before, neuroscience. And I was like, neuroscience, the study of the brain? Are you kidding? That's what I want, so. Do you have somebody in your life that you consider to be a role model or a mentor? Uh, bear in mind, it doesn't have to be somebody in science. And what do you admire about them? My undergraduate mentor was really special to me and to a lot of people. If you ask him like, oh, who are you? He'll say, I'm just a white guy from Connecticut, but he's not just a white guy from Connecticut. When he was in grad school, he kind of had like a crisis of science is just a rat race. And I think that's something that a lot of us experience, right? Like he felt like empty. He's like, okay, we're all just in this rat race to get this paper and then what, you know, what's the point of it all? So he lost a little bit of focus and then he started doing other things that included uh, moving to Honduras to help collect data regarding, there, there had been a dictatorship that happened in Honduras 
and they were assaying PTSD in the population. And so for the first time, he experienced that you could use science for things that related to social justice and for things that could help the community. And what then a surprise that must have been, you know, as a grad student, him, I yeah. realized yeah. that, oh my God, I can actually do some immediate good with my work. Yeah. <laughs> So that was really gratifying to him. And then he wrote a grant to get a little bit of money and then start a neuroscience class in the medical school in Honduras because the medical students didn't really get any neuroscience training. So he got some equipment donated and this was fresh out of PhD, which is like amazing when I think about it, right? And he set up a small research program studying in rats how malnutrition affects behavior in the pups because that was something that was really relevant for the country and he went back to New York where he was from and he was like, what now? He wasn't sure like how to go back to the real science world. All of this led to him deciding to set up his research career in Puerto Rico because it's a place where he can get NIH funding, which is a huge deal. You know, if the person listening to this is a scientist, we know that research is really expensive. <laughs> but there was there was not a lot of opportunity to research careers and just access to research opportunities in Puerto Rico is really limited. So he thought, you know, if I go there, I'm going to be creating opportunities with the scientific training that I'm providing while doing science. And he's the reason I'm here today. And that's what he taught us too. Like, you know, in being in his lab, we discuss often that science can change people's lives in different ways. It could be because it provides you with access to, you know, like a PhD doesn't cost money, right? Like, as opposed right. to like other graduate programs. Like, so right. it can be an opportunity for somebody that otherwise wouldn't have been able to do any graduate program whatsoever, right? It can create opportunities and can empower the community. Like you collect data, you use that data to do things. It could be like, we don't have this, We're, we've quantified it and I'm showing you that we don't have X. So from early on, that message and that that's seated in my, you know, in my heart and my soul and my brain, I'm not going to have the same career path that he did, but in whatever I do end up doing, I know that science is a tool for changing people's lives in whatever way it ends up being. But I'm really aware of that. And his name is Gregory Kirk. <laughs> I was just going to ask that. I was like, that sounds amazing, but you haven't really mentioned his name yet. <laughs> his name is Gregory Kirk, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned it. You know, most of the people just end up falling in love with the science and, you know, they love it because it gives them a chance to solve puzzles. It gives them a chance to, like, push the boundaries of knowledge, hack away at the frontiers of what we know. But this is such an inspiring, different story about why somebody would get into science. As academics, sometimes we forget that our institutions are embedded in these communities, right? and you can engage, you should engage the community. You're in their space, right? Like, so, um, yeah. Greg's story sounds fantastic. And yeah, so I know, yours. I tell him that I, I'm hoping that he writes a book. He says that he might get to it. I would love to read what he writes. I mean, his papers are amazing as is, so I can't yeah. even imagine like what his life story is going to be like. Tell us a little bit about what you work on right now. So I'm a postdoc right now, and I'm really interested 
overall in understanding how does the brain help us behave in a social scenario? Like how does it take information about our social context and how does it use that information to guide our social interactions? Specifically, how does the brain encode social rank information? Humans and other social animals organize themselves into hierarchies. In our case, the hierarchies are pretty context dependent, right? Like work hierarchies, family hierarchies, etc. Like the government, that's a hierarchy. And then the position of each animal or each person in this hierarchy is going to help animals or humans like decide how to interact with each other. So mice do that. I study mice and I am interested in understanding how the brain is capable of doing that. You put a group of mice together, they'll form a hierarchy. You don't have to do much. You do have to work on being able to tell who's who, like so using behavioral assays to tell them apart. So once it's formed, I wanna know how is it represented in the brain? And what I found is that the prefrontal cortex, which helps us make decisions, the activity of the prefrontal cortex of that part of the brain is actually predictive of animal social ranks. And I found a specific sub-circuit of cells that seems to be controlling the social rank and dominance related behaviors. That's amazing. Yeah, right? yeah. It's like finding like the very tiny key to a very tiny lock to a very question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. So do you consider yourself to be part of an immigrant or a minority group? And have there been times where you've felt out of place or have you faced some sort of discrimination because of this? Yeah, so I am a Latina, right? I'm born and raised in Puerto Rico. When it comes to race, it's, we're mixed um, in my family, a mixture of indigenous and European. I've never really thought about my race often. Like in, in fact, like if you ask people in Puerto Rico, what's your race, they'll say Puerto Rican. <laughs> That's the best answer they can give, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which is, it's not an option to put that down, but you know. Um, <laughs> so I do consider myself a member of a minoritized group. Oh, and the thing about being an immigrant with Puerto Rico is kind of strange because culturally I was an immigrant, but Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States. So I, I was am... just going to ask that because this is your country, but yeah, it's so it's funny culture... this, how things yeah. have evolved. It's another country culturally, you know, like as people, as a nation, like there's a separate government there. There's a separate constitution. The trick is that that constitution, the US Congress can overpower it at any moment. It's not really like a valid document. It's a really strange thing. Like when you think big picture that these other people that we didn't elect can change anything. That's ridiculous. Then, you know, it's, like, it's really a colony. But because there is a constitution, there's the local laws that are different from the laws in the US. So it really feels like another country. We speak Spanish, so there's that language divide. Obviously, we're constantly thinking and talking about the US, but when we do, it's like them and us. It's in a very there's much- There's othering that's happening. Like there you don't really othering. consider yourself part of the group. Yeah, there is this othering. And when people leave, it's like, oh, they went away. You know, it means US. Well, it kind of technically translates to like, they went outside, but it means if. Está allá afuera. It's out there outside, means they're in the US. 
<laughs> wow. wow no i can imagine and and of course like what you use as words to describe something like this changes yeah. the way you think about it right so that's culturally like it really feels like another place so we don't feel part of the united states i'm sure there might be some puerto ricans that might feel differently but that's how i feel But the bottom line of your question is I do consider myself uh you know a latina and also cultural immigrant so a very different experience but definitely nothing like the burden and the difficulties that our colleagues who are international like that limited access to funding like it's like you're here but there's so many closed doors I am fortunate not to have experienced that I guess all that was like to explain that when I moved to New York City for grad school I really felt like an outsider. My English wasn't so good, as good as it is now. Inside the university, people spoke really well, right? Like outside of the university, I felt fine. People spoke Spanish in Washington Heights where I was, which is Upper Manhattan, like it's a lot of a lot of Latino communities there. So I felt fine, but inside the university I could tell people were struggling to understand me and I was certainly struggling to understand people. I could read a paper like I think scientific language is one thing, right? But then when you're talking colloquial and like using terms that have like what is that word that you just said like so I remember that making me feel like I shouldn't have gone to grad school. I thought I'm not ready, maybe I should have been a technician. And then I also had the intense uh, imposter syndrome at the beginning of grad school. I've had it at many many stages of my career and in fact now it's my friend and I just accept it and it's there and uh, you know just it looks like you pat it on the head it's it's on the side of the room and you're like I know you're here. <laughs> you're here but calm down. Okay. <laughs> so but at the beginning of grad school it was overwhelming and I remember both graduate students and like other people underestimating me like and stereotyping me as like the latina you know as like the ooh nancy bubba and like you know like they would see me and like will make like a fake latino accent and like sexualize me in a way that made me really uncomfortable so um that was a struggle because oh, wow. there is this latina stereotype that we see in the media and maybe people don't realize maybe they're just trying to bond with me you know it's not coming from a negative place but obviously makes me feel extremely uncomfortable and not welcomed you know like i'm not an equal yeah so there were little comments here and there related to who i was and like stereotyping me and also comments like do you know like i don't know if you've ever experienced this but i dislike when somebody tells me good for you It's one of it's one of the phrases I intensely dislike. <laughs> and it was I'm like I'm just like I don't need that much patronization in my life. I think I'm yeah. doing fine without you telling me, "Oh, good for you." So, so it, it kind of carries this weight of like they don't know you and then they they didn't expect you to do this well, but you ended up doing well anyway. And so they don't know how to react to that. It's such a it's a classic phrase. Yeah, I remember feeling that in 2011, 2012 being told good for you several times. 
it was not a nice feeling. I never said anything because it's like, it's supposed to be telling me something nice, but it made me feel so bad. It was so strange. I mean, it, I feel like it's such a microaggression at this point, you know, like, I guess so. Yeah. Nowadays, yeah. I think in 2020, people will like definitely label it as a microaggression. At that time, that language didn't exist for me. So I was like, I don't know. I don't like it. It, it wouldn't sit well. Because, you know, people are like, oh, where did you do your undergrad? But I remember telling people, oh, the University of Puerto Rico. Good for you. And you're here now. And I was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> and then, yeah, so I would say like early in grad school were the most selling and experiences. And I think it's because me adjusting, right? Like I was adjusting and I was in a vulnerable position by adjusting. Yeah, but also the fact that you had all this on top of adjusting, on top of imposter syndrome. And you're starting grad school. It's like not an easy thing to do. You have so much load. You have lab and your courses, so many things to do. And yeah, then it is overwhelming. Yeah. That's a really nice example. I never really thought about why it makes me feel mad too, but thank you for <laughs> thank you for voicing it. Like I understand now. Now I can tolerate it more and I think because I feel like I'm better with the language, I understand the subtext a little bit better. So the tone helps me decide if it feels good or bad. <laughs> That's a good call. That helps also. And you're right, the emotion and the subtext it it helps mm -hmm. and like yeah then you kind of can guess more or less what they mean by it and it's not like loaded with meaning or, or they just really honestly they're just happy for you one of the last questions that we have but hopefully this sort of ties everything together diversity has become like an overwhelming catchphrase like everybody talks about diversity these days but like what does it mean to you have you been part of an example where you know you've seen that diversity matters mm -hmm. yeah so for me diversity it is true what you say that it's like overuse perhaps but for me diversity is diversity of backgrounds scientific and also personal right like both so that means diversity of race, gender, sexuality, expressions, cultures, your expertise, your science expertise, you know, diverse voices, right? Like diverse opinions are going to help us both in our scientific goals and in our non-scientific goals as well, right? Like so <laughs> in our life goals, <laughs> in everything, right? Like we are humans trying to work with each other and navigate spaces together. And we want things to be equitable, right? Like in the US, the American dream is that you can work hard and get the payout for that working hard. So basically behind that, there is an equity idea, right? Like an idea of like, if you work hard, that will pay off. And it doesn't that, matter who you are. It doesn't matter it doesn't where matter you come you from. Are. Exactly. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your background, your race, your gender. So how do we get there? It requires, in my opinion, that people that are very different from each other give their perspective, right? Because there's no way that one type of person is going to know what the experience is like for everybody else. And I guess an example of when it's mattered a lot to me. Once I decided that I was going to be a scientist, I made that decision in Puerto Rico as a non-minority because there I was surrounded by Puerto Ricans. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was in my space and I built my scientific confidence at an early age there. Once I left, I became minoritized, <laughs> like the only one in the room and whatnot. And 
I almost took that as default. It's sad because I think at the beginning stages of my career, like in graduate school and even early in my postdoc, I never thought that was gonna change. It never crossed my mind that that could change. It was like, it is what it is. In, in my head, and especially I think in grad school, maybe I didn't feel like I had the power to do anything. So it was like, survive, survive, survive. And then later in my postdoc, I think as I stopped thinking about survival mode a little bit, I started realizing that policies make a difference. I remember in graduate school at Columbia University at the time, in the building where I was, there was no lactation room for women. And obviously there have been women and pregnant women and mother women in the building for decades. And during my grad school, like that didn't seem odd to me, but I think as I matured and I had space in my head to think about this stuff, I was like, this is insane. Like, I, and I remember, you know, women talking about how expensive and difficult it was to get childcare and postdocs that were like absolutely stressed by this and and then you can see when you think about it you you see the leaky pipeline right like and mm -hmm. when people are a women of an underrepresented group that you're already feeling like you don't belong in the room it's like even worse it's like get out this is like i mean difficult. you just you're just thinking you know what i'm probably gonna have a better life if I just end up going somewhere else and making more Do money. something else, yeah. Even if you're like good that at... simple. Yes, absolutely. So I think that later, like mid-post, like I would say, like, I was like, I kind of want to do something about this. And the, the thing that made me want to do something at, at my capacity about it was um, that I acknowledge my own bias. I was looking at a list of potential seminar speakers for an event, and I didn't notice that there was not a single woman on the list and it, then a it friend comes slowly but it hits you pretty hard doesn't it yeah and i was like oh my god this is great scientists we have a great list we're all good and then my friend was like nancy there's not a single woman i'm like no that's not true <gasps> i was like nobody submitted a woman's name including me and including my friend none of us thought of women and it just freaked me out that i didn't notice That is how I came up with the idea of starting a project that increased the visibility of women in neuroscience because I felt like I knew my friends in neuroscience and I knew they're really famous women. There's like the really, really famous women and they were my friends and I didn't know anybody else. Yeah, so I was like, no, I'm tired of this. I know there's so many women. They're, they're not as invited, they're not as highlighted and like, you know, we don't see them and we don't acknowledge their work and their contributions. So through these projects, Stories of Women in Neuroscience, we have a dual goal. One goal is to increase the visibility, right? And like highlight their contributions to neuroscience. And the other goal is to talk about their career paths and like talk about those challenges, talk about like the lack of lactation rooms for some women or navigating these spaces, right, that are male dominated. And it's a wonderful project that I never anticipated how good it was going to make me feel and how much it was going to help me with my own imposter syndrome talking to these full professors who are telling me about their imposter syndrome when they were like already a professor and learning that through these conversations with women I was like this is normal and everybody a lot of people have it and these women that are amazing that I admired often feel like the imposter syndrome or like the oh I'm not so sure if I'm good enough they're not being good enough right like all of these like things that 
and then you realize that you're not alone in that and then you realize it's normal and then it kind of goes away a little bit you know there's solidarity in it i mean it's also it's sort of almost maybe it's a bad analogy but i feel like it's like sharing your pain a little bit like you know lessens your own burden so yeah if you tell somebody that you're not feeling good about something and they acknowledge saying oh yeah you know what i felt exactly the same way before and it's yeah and there's something about like admiring them right like they've had amazing careers despite feeling like that occasionally or sometimes and then you're like oh i could do it too so it's also like helping me visualize and hopefully it gives you like that little extra hope saying oh if they can do it yeah yeah Yeah. so through this project we definitely try to capture diversity of voices right like when we interview women we're we're including not just biologically born women but women trans women right and like in the different spectrums of the sexuality and we also try to uh, cover different ethnicities not just races but like people that are muslim like all you know we really try to capture because there is a lot of women in neuroscience from extremely diverse backgrounds so we 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 make a point to not be biased in the pool of people that we interview and to try and capture uh, the variety of stories so I had the idea, but I, I knew I couldn't do it alone. So I contacted a friend that does Psycom and I'm like, and I, you know, I sent her an email and she's like, I love this idea. I'm going to help you. And I thought she was just going to like give me some, you know, ideas. And she's like, I'm down. And and then Perfect. she, her name is Katie Profasi. She knew the community because I knew I was moving to San Diego. So she knew people in San Diego that were also interested in Psycom. And it happened that to all be women. It's been like a women lifting women project. Like it's an all female team. Um, I mean, I, yeah. nobody could ask for a better organization, right? Yeah, and it wasn't on purpose. You know, it's not like we purposely said like, oh, we only want to work with women, but it's made it such that it's, I don't know, like we're all on the same page, you know, about the importance and we feel really comfortable with each other. So it's a really wonderful experience. Yeah, um, last question. Um, what do you do for fun? What is something that you like doing other than science, other than neuroscience? I like running. It distresses me. I could be thinking about science if I want, but I don't have to. So sometimes purposely, I'm like, I need to run and I'm going to listen to this amazing music that I like and not think about anything except breathing and like not quitting. Perfect meditation. That's what you do, right? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to like add or you want to tell me about? Well, I guess I'll give like a minute of advice for grad students or like trainees listening. Remember that failure is part of it. Without failure, you're not going to succeed. Even if things fail and fail and fail, it's normal. You're on track. (laughs) That is something that's not just for trainees. That's something I needed to hear today. So thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Alba Diversity Podcast. To know more about the ALBA network and its activities to promote equity and diversity in the brain sciences, please visit alba.network. You can also register as a member for free and take full advantage of the network's resources. For more details, follow the Twitter handle at network underscore ALBA or ALBA NetBrain on Facebook.